What is your name? Katerina, from Cremona. I'm Leonardo, from Vinci. He's so many things. I mean, even by his very nature, you know, by what he did, you know, everything from a scientist, engineer, botanist, painter, sculptor, mathematician, like it just, and more, and there was so much more. He was uh, Aiden Tanaka. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? It's hard. He's beyond definitions. I think that's right. We've painted our, we're not painters, but we've painted our portrait of Leonardo. It's not really occurred to me before, of course, that's what Frank and I have been for the last two years, is portrait painters of Leonardo. This is Leonardo, the official podcast, episode one. I'm Angelica Bell, and over the next eight episodes, I'll be guiding you through the complex world of Leonardo da Vinci, someone I've been fascinated by ever since I got to see some of his paintings firsthand as a teenager. I was on a singing tour in Italy with my magical choir, and when we were in Florence, I can still remember walking around the Uffizi Gallery mesmerised, and I'm still mesmerised by his paintings now. I got to see The Baptism of Christ, which features in episode one of Leonardo. And it's true, it was created by Verrocchio, with the two kneeling angels painted by Verrocchio's pupil, Leonardo da Vinci, who would have been in his early 20s at the time. So the legend goes, Leonardo's work on The Baptism of Christ caused such a stir with his impressive use of colour and technique that Verrocchio, his tutor, stopped painting shortly after that artwork was completed. So in this podcast, we'll go behind the scenes on the drama, discovering the truth and fiction from the cast and crew who created the show. We'll be following Leonardo episode by episode, shedding light on the key themes of the series, exploring portrayals of masculinity and understanding how women were treated. And we'll answer those burning questions. Was Caterina de Cremona real? Why invent a murder mystery? And what do we know about da Vinci's missing masterpiece? There is the mystery surrounding also around that painting, because that painting has disappeared. That was Caterina in the sketches for Lady and the Swan. I mean, it is a mystery. You kind of go like, where did the painting go? And why the secrecy, if there's any? It does invite questions. There's a lot that unfolds in episode one of the drama, and that's what we'll be getting into in more depth here. But whether you've seen Leonardo yet or not, there is so much to learn about him and how he lived. We'll hear from the curators who look after some of his most famous artworks, as well as historical experts who can give us a true sense of what it would have been like to be alive in the time of da Vinci. Ready? Well, let's get started. Gather round, come quickly now, everybody, please. Okay, gather round. Straight in at the back as well, please. Okay, quietly, tuck in. Maestro. This time, we'll hear from Aidan Turner and Matilda De Angelis as they introduce us to their world of da Vinci on screen, discussing auditions, accents and Leonardo's sexuality. His sexuality, I didn't know about that. I don't think I was so sure about that either. I felt like in the last even five years, it's something I've learned, in the last few years. They don't tell you at school. And giving us an overview of why da Vinci's artistic vision has mattered for more than 500 years, I'll be speaking to the person responsible for the Leonardo artwork held by the Royal Collection Trust at Windsor Castle. I've got accustomed to handling the drawings, but you never get used to Leonardo. He's always surprising. But first, 
How do you fancy a murder mystery? Or even a woman erased from history? Well, we've got that too, thanks to the creators of the drama. I was asked to do Leonardo and turned it down because I thought it was going to be too hard. And then Lux Vide came back to me and said, we have Steve Thompson on board. Would you reconsider? And I said, oh, all right. I'm Frank Spotnitz. I'm a writer and co-creator of Leonardo. And I'm Steve Thompson, and I'm the other writer and co-creator of Leonardo. All right. Um, what about Leonardo da Vinci? What's his story? Well, the problem is, of course, that you can't just write one drama about Leonardo. You could write 10 different ones, more than 10. You know, the guy's not just a famous artist. He's a famous inventor and scientist and astronomer and has led this incredibly fascinating life. So where you even begin to start, how you tap into this extraordinarily rich life, there's almost too much material. Well, there's way too much material. One of the first things we sort of talked about was why does art matter? And we hit upon the idea of a love story fairly early on. The murder mystery came later. We read everything we could get our hands on, and Steve came across in one of the books this list of people who were important to Leonardo. He was traveling later on in life. He was traveling around Italy, and he wrote a list to his servants saying, these are the people I will be traveling with. And it was basically very personal. It was like a little list of these are the most important people to me in the world, and you need to know that if I'm going anywhere, they will be alongside me. And most of them were names that we knew. Most of them were names who occur in any historical study of Leonardo. But one of them was just described as the woman from Cremona. That's all he says in the list. When I'm traveling, I will have the woman from Cremona with me. This has become a historical mystery. Nobody quite knows who she is. There is the suggestion that she was the subject of his very last, or his greatest painting. We believe what was his greatest painting, which has now sadly um, been destroyed, Leader in the Swan. Well, of course, from a point of view of dramatists, immediately, you know, that sets our antennae pulsing and we want to fill in the blanks. Tell me about this woman, Caterina de Cremona. What was she to you? She was love. Why has she vanished from history? All the images but one have gone. There's no reference to her in the history books. There's just one little note he sent to his servants in which she's mentioned. So we've been left with a historical mystery and that kept nagging away at us. And that's how we created this frame or this framing device that she's vanished from history and Stefano Giraldi is quizzing him and saying, why, where has she gone? What's happened to her? Even though Caterina de Cremona is based on truth, a real person recorded in history, her murder is an entirely made-up device that the creators used to take us deeper into Leonardo's world. Frank explains... I think the other thing that the mystery did for us that was really helpful was it created a point of view on Leonardo da Vinci. So Stefano Giraldi, the Freddie Highmore character, is not particularly a fan of art, not particularly a fan of Leonardo da Vinci, but he's got this urgent need to solve this murder. And in so doing, he interrogates Leonardo literally about his life and career. And so by giving him an urgent reason to do that, we kind of gave our audience an urgent reason to do that. It's an urgent reason to learn about art, which is not, while it's wonderful and beautiful and important, not necessarily something people want to watch, you know, as a TV drama. And so that's a reason why it's a TV drama. So to me, it's the best use of fiction. It's fiction to illuminate something really true and beautiful and, and valuable. 
Well, it's a really important point, actually, because if the story of each episode is the creation of a piece of art, in quite a lot of these cases, we know they were painted. You know, we've seen the Mona Lisa. So it's all very well saying, let's create a drama where we watch this guy struggle to create the Mona Lisa, but everybody, everybody knows the ending. Uh, and actually, that's quite difficult from a dramatic point of view. What are the stakes? What are the stakes in Leonardo's life? So we put this huge dollop of stakes in the middle of the show, which is, of course, this guy is on trial for murder. If that's true, then why did you kill her? I didn't. I couldn't. There are witnesses. We know you're skilled in alchemy. If you're innocent, where's your proof? Say something to convince me. I can't. It was critical for Frank Spotnitz and Stephen Thompson that the drama they wrote wasn't a cliched romance. They wanted more from that central relationship between Leonardo and Catalina. It had to tell the truth about da Vinci's life. It was always going to be a platonic love story. That was a decision that we made very early on. It's quite clear from the historical record that Leonardo was gay. And there have been other treatments of his life on film and television that never dealt with it squarely. And Steve and I said, we're going to do that. We knew about the woman from Cremona and we knew that, you know, she was the subject of Lita and the Swan. So that was a wonderful territory for us as dramatists. But the fact that he was gay meant that it was going to be a platonic love story, which we thought made it even more powerful. Tell me, do you find it easy to pick up women? Because your routine needs a lot of work. You are perfect ones. We are all of us born perfect. Gradually that perfection is worn away. It's the hammer blows that make us works of art. Do you have any idea just how strange you are? We had an extraordinary moment. We went to Buckingham Palace and got a little private view. I'm so proud of this. We got a private viewing of the Queen's collection of Leonardo's sketchbooks. We went one evening and just half a dozen of us, Frank and I and the editorial team and the director, Dan, were shown around. And it's an extraordinary exhibition. So just to focus on the point that Steve and Frank are making about wanting to dramatise aspects around da Vinci's life as a way into what it is that makes Leonardo's art so special, even 500 years after it was made. Let's head to the House of Windsor ourselves for a moment. I'm Martin Clayton. I'm head of prints and drawings for Royal Collection Trust. I look after the collection of historic prints, drawings and watercolours, most of which were acquired uh, during the reigns of Charles II, George III, Queen Victoria. So the collection's been together for several hundred years. What else do they say about me? Some say you're a genius. Some. And the others? I think every generation, every century has a different Leonardo and the, the Leonardo that we love or flock to see today is very different from the Leonardo of 200 years ago. We think of him now first and foremost as the great artist, scientist, inventor, the greatest genius, I suppose, in, you know, it's, it's a term I don't like to use, but if anybody was a genius, it was Leonardo. So I think we're kind of safe to be using that term for him. And the idea of somebody who can straddle all disciplines and be equally accomplished in every one is very seductive for us today. It, it appeals to a maybe a time of you know, greater simplicity or something like that, but the fact that somebody was able to, to be a great painter and a great scientist at the same time is very seductive. It helps that he painted the most famous painting in the world, I suppose. So what is it about Leonardo that stood him apart 
what was he famous for in that time? Before the last quarter of the 19th century, Leonardo was somebody who was a bizarre genius who frittered away his talents creating japes to amuse his patrons and to entertain his followers. Somebody who was spending 20 years creating a single painting, which is why he made hardly anything in his lifetime. Somebody who was more fascinated by the possibilities of, of art than with actually finishing something. And it really only is in the last 100, 125 years that people have had a proper understanding of who Leonardo was. So we can see him better now, I think, than at any time since his death. They draw what they want the world to see, an ideal. I don't draw that. I draw what I see. I believe that nature is the greatest artwork. That's what I want to reproduce, not some hollow imitation. Many people who know Leonardo as an artist will be surprised to learn, I think, that he wasn't just a painter who had a little interest in the sciences on the side, but had he never painted a thing in his life, his anatomical drawings would mark him out as one of the great figures of the Renaissance, regardless of his activity as a painter. He would be seen on a par with Galileo, for example, as, as one of the great scientists of the post-medieval period. And the anatomical drawings are the works that allow us to give him that accolade. I mean, they are incredible. But a question that often comes up, and I know I've had the same reaction when I saw the Mona Lisa for the first time, is why are so many of Leonardo's artworks so tiny? Well, most of Leonardo's paintings that survive were not paintings for public consumption. The Last Supper and the Battle of Anghiari were large murals. There were a, a couple of altarpieces, but the remainder were private domestic paintings, something like the Mona Lisa, even if it ended up as a, a painting for Leonardo's own satisfaction, was initially commissioned as a portrait and would have hung in somebody's residence. That would have been the intention of it, at least. The Ginevra de Benci, one of the very early works, is tiny. It's, you know, it's only about a foot square. And you find the same strangely small size, unexpectedly small size, in, in some of the drawings. Of course, a notebook would have been something that Leonardo would have wanted to carry around with him, a pocketbook. And some of them are really only about the size of a pack of playing cards. I mean, they're tiny. The drawings that we have at Windsor are mostly drawings that would have been individual sheets when Leonardo made them and would have been about sort of A4 or fool's cap in size when, when Leonardo made the drawing. And there would have been, in many cases, cut down by a later owner to, to frame the motif better when they were pasted into an album. So they're even smaller now than what they were when Leonardo made the drawing. But paper was relatively expensive at the time. You know, a hundred years later, artists could use paper in a wasteful way when paper had become almost an industrial commodity. But in Leonardo's day, it was a carefully handmade, high-value product that wasn't as expensive as a piece of parchment, as a piece of vellum. It was you know, about a sixth or tenth the cost of a piece of vellum. But it would still have been a major studio expenditure for Leonardo, and so he used paper carefully and didn't make big drawings if a small drawing would do the job just as well. We'll hear more from Martin later in this episode. But it's that attention to detail, Leonardo's energy and focus on every tiny drawing that made such an impression on writers Frank Spotnitz and Steve Thompson. Steve takes us back to what it was like to be standing in the room with that Royal Da Vinci collection. Paper was so precious to him. 
that all of the pages are just crammed with images. There's not just one drawing, there's a hundred images crammed on one page, and of course on both sides. So all of the pages are displayed through glass vertically so that you can walk around either side of them and look either side of them. And in the middle of this is a sketch of Caterina de Cremona, and it's almost the only sketch of her which still exists. And it's a preliminary sketch for Leder and the Swan. It's believed to be her, and it's probably the only image of her which survives. And of course, it stopped us in our tracks. It was just stunning to actually see her, this woman we were fascinated by and had been writing about and had been fantasizing about and knew very little about. I just want to say about fictionalizing the woman from Cremona, you know, calling her Caterina de Cremona. Having done the Medici series for three years with Italian television, I already was familiar with the holes in history. We all think, well, history is recorded. Actually, there's massive gaps in history, especially if you go back to you know, the 1500s. But especially when it concerns women, they tend to often be underrepresented. So you realize if you want to write history and you want to tell the story of women as well as men, you have to fill in the blanks. You have to use your imagination to kind of restore them. They existed, they mattered, they were important, but history didn't bother writing it down. Now I watched episode one of Leonardo and promptly fell into a black hole online of trying to find out all I could about Caterina and who she was based on. Now if you did the same, it was all part of the writer's plan. It's incredibly exciting and we had exactly that conversation, you know, 18 months ago when we were sitting in the writer's room saying if we do our jobs correctly, people are going to dive to a search engine and try and find out everything they can about the woman from Cremona. I really hope that this show causes people to go back and investigate the real history and look again at Leonardo's achievements. I think about, you know, one of our inspirations for this show was the play and the movie by Peter Schaefer, Amadeus. Historians will tell you Salieri almost certainly did not murder Mozart. Nonetheless, you can't watch that movie and not be captivated by mm -hmm. Mozart and become kind of a Mozart fan. And so I think we very much hope this will have the same effect that Amadeus did for Mozart. I was going to say, we had another slightly surprising inspiration that we had stuck on the wall whilst we were in, in the writer's room. We had a lot of his art, but we also had a picture of um, Alexander McQueen and Isabella Blow, which stayed there all the time we were working as you know a, a, this brilliant artist and designer who had one person who was a huge inspiration to him. And, and that relationship stuck in our minds when we were first developing the relationship in the drama. Yeah, that's actually, as Steve was saying, it's reminding me that one of the things we thought was that Katerina was street smart. Katerina was smart about politics, about people, about the world. Leonardo was very much in his own head. He was a genius, but he wasn't so good about that stuff. And that's what Katerina kind of provides him. They, they kind of complete each other. Like together, they make one whole incredible person, but they need each other to, to fill in their gaps, each other's gaps. All my life, I have felt like nothing until now and until you. Before the series even came out, people started talking online about the artistic choices that had been made with the drama and gave their views on this version of history. Well, Frank and I, I just worked this out, but Frank and I obviously have incredibly different attitudes to it because Frank looks online and I don't, actually, is what it comes down to. 
And it, you know, it's amazing how you could exist in your own little bubble if you don't look at you know what people are saying about your work online. It, you know, it's it's uh, it can make life so much easier. I, I I'm fascinated to know that you know you've been reading some of these responses, Frank, and of course it's very interesting because you know it's a huge moment. It's like stepping off a cliff. Yeah, I think you know social media is utterly unpredictable and uncontrollable and and ultimately terrifying because you just don't know where a wildfire is going to start and what direction it will take you in if it does start. But having said that, I do feel a bit sanguine. I feel really good about what we've done and really proud of it. One of the things that we did encounter is that nations feel very protective of him and feel they have a kind of ownership of him. And it was interesting doing a co-production because, uh, you know, clearly he was Italian and he did most of his work in Milan and Florence. But at the same time, the French feel very protective of him because so much of his work is in the Louvre and because he spent the last 20 years of his life in France. The French almost think of him as being French, and the Italians think of him as being Italian. Of course, he's, you know, he's owned by all of us in many ways. Um, but that, that I thought was quite interesting. You've worked most of your life in service. Excuse me? You have calluses on your hands, candle grease in your hair. I can see everything. So basically you're saying I'm not pretty enough to sketch. That is not what I said. But that's what you meant. No, no, no. You, you, you have quality. Is difficult to define, that's all. Too late. It's been nonstop. I mean, from the day Aiden was cast, constantly getting questions and inquiries and things about Aiden. Really, like, will he be appearing at this fan convention despite the pandemic? And you know, many, many questions, a lot of interest in Aiden. And then, of course, there were people on set taking pictures of Aiden. There were paparazzi taking pictures when we were shooting on location. Yeah. It's a mixed blessing, that kind of uh, adoration. You know, he's a very fine actor <laughs> in addition to having a rapid fan base. He deals with it all with incredibly good grace and elegance, I think. There is so much more to get into with Frank and Steve as we get into the series. But for now, seeing as they brought them up... My name is Aidan Turner. I play Leonardo da Vinci in Leonardo. <laughs> My name is Matilda de Angelis and I play Caterina in Leonardo. Known for playing Poldark, Aidan Turner's hobby of oil painting turned out to be a happy coincidence as he became Leonardo da Vinci. While Matilda de Angelis, last seen complicating the lives of Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant in The Undoing, now got to tangle with arguably the world's most famous artist, at least according to her native Italy. Director Dan Percival played a key role in building the chemistry of the characters as well. But before Aidan and Matilda pick up the story, Dan sets the scene. I had them both over to my apartment. This is pre-COVID and we could do this for, for a rehearsal. And I just wanted the two of them because they hadn't really met each other or didn't know each other and they were both very nervous, hadn't shot a thing. And we just wanted to go through the first two episodes and play out some of these scenes to play out the, the core of the beginning of their relationship. And we were just working away these scenes and suddenly the two of them just, something happened. They just connected and started laughing and started relaxing one another. And, and all I had to do was sit back and let them go. You know, there were two people who get on like a house on fire. They really, they really adore each other and really respect one another. And when they start saying, oh, what if we try this and what if we try that? And I, I can just step back and let them go. And that was the moment I just thought, this is a great couple. This is a great screen couple. This is more than I could have wished for. I thought I was going to really have to roll up my sleeves and help these two people who've never met each other before in their life find this somehow. And they found it themselves in like 20 minutes over some olives and a glass of wine. 
We'll be hearing more from Dan in episode two. But for now, we followed in his footsteps and reunited Aidan and Matilda, just the two of them, to get into some of the key choices the actors made when considering their characters of Leonardo and Catalina. Well, my audition process was pretty simple. I had an audition, my first audition with Dan, which was great. It's it's always great to audition with the director in person. You say the first time you auditioned, did you have to audition more than one time for this? Surely not. No, just one. Okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> I, I mean, many times you do an audition, then a callback and another callback. I mean, in Italy, it's like that. Yeah. I think it was one of these ones that Dan saw you and he just said, perfect, straight away. I'm almost sure he told me that story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine was a little strange. I was, I was in Malta working on something and the script was sent to me. And then I was told to hurry up and read it because Dan was going to be in Malta, our director, in Malta the following week. I read it and loved it. But yeah, it was a strange one. When you meet the director, you've even though you can get attached to a script and a story, so much matters on who's directing it. And when I met Dan, it was the first time I met him. And I knew of Dan, I knew some projects he had done and some actors he had worked with, but I, that was everything. That sealed the deal for me, really. You know, I, he was kind and tender and calm and just really listened, which, you know, the significance of that is, is kind of huge. So many directors and so many people you meet they kind of, they want to tell you things and show you things and convince you on things. And Dan just didn't. And we just, a lot of the time, sat in silence and just talked about, you know, random things and not always the script. I think it was his way. And I didn't know what was happening at the time, but it was his way of realizing that we can get on together. Now, this is a contractual arrangement. An artist paying for a model. Nothing more. No. I remember being quite nervous, actually. There's something about preparing when you're on set and, you know, you, you might rehearse with the actors on set or you go through, you know, makeup and hair or whatever else you're doing, you're rehearsing on, on the set. But when you're in somebody's living room and you're with the other actor that you're going to spend so much time with and it's the first time you meet them and then an hour later you're holding a script, you know, and you're facing off with a person in a very real scenario. You know, you're wearing a pair of jeans and it's just everything is casual but heightened. Um, I remember being quite nervous, but it, it worked because I, I think the initial scenes we read, which may have been the scenes you auditioned with, I'm not sure, Leonardo was quite young and nervous too. So I remember thinking, God, this is, they're going to think I'm a great actor, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm acting this nervousness, but I'm, I'm, you know, secretly terrified. I was nervous too. I didn't think you were nervous. Yeah, there's always so much pressure on these things, isn't there? And then, and it's the first time Dan gets to hear your voice as the character, as Katerina, and my voice as Leonardo. And it's like, what if he just, what if he can't work with us? What if yeah. it's just, it's not too late to recast. Like, it's every actor's worst nightmare, but it's something you think of, right? You think, I'm here in Italy, but that doesn't mean anything. But no, I remember us connecting, and, and I remember, and it's something that happened throughout the course of us working together, and something that I really hung on to and, and I loved was just that you could just put down the script. You know, we, we'd have a vague idea or more than a vague idea of what we're talking about in the scene, but we would then put it down and then it's just, we'd connect and, and it just had to be real and it had to feel real. And that's something from that rehearsal in Dan's apartment. I kind of went, oh, this is great. Like this, we're on, we're, we're on a level now that we can really communicate. Like it doesn't feel like we're acting it. It just, it feels like we're just, we're there which was such a huge relief for me too, to go, God, this is really going to work. You know, if nothing else works, at least our relationship will work. <laughs> it was just, it, was felt, it felt really good. 
What about this face? This face? Yes. She looks strong. Yes. And determined. Like it. She wants a better life for herself. <laughs> but also, she's been hurt. And she doesn't want to be hurt again. For me, the most scary part was the English, actually. This wasn't your first uh, English-speaking drama, though, was it? My first was The Undoing, but, I mean, five scenes against six months of shooting is right. something else. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I was aware of that. I think you had done more. I know Carlos, who plays Salai, that was his first, but I wasn't aware that it was practically yours as well. No, wow. it was my first. No, no, no. Wow. So you worked with a voice coach? You did all the, all the yeah. all that kind of thing? Voice coach, Dan. I mean, Dan was incredible for me because sometimes he would tell me like, okay, forget it, let it go, be there. Because you, we can fix your English, but we cannot fix your heart and emotions and stuff. So be there. Yeah, intention and all that. That's so true. I never felt like judged or, or anything. No, <laughs> no. So I don't draw like the others do. You don't talk much like them either. No. No. So, Aiden, what was your choice for the accent of Leonardo da Vinci? What was my choice of accent? Um, <laughs> I sort of deduced it down to accents that would be inappropriate and ones I couldn't do. You know, <laughs> like, um, okay, can we give him a general American accent or a Southern accent? Nah, probably not. Um, Irish accent? I do that one pretty well. No, wouldn't really be appropriate that one. Maybe a broken English Italian? Oh, that could go. That could go uh, pretty bad pretty quickly. So it's just, what are you left with, you know? And that's what I was saying to Dan. I said, this is going to be strange because essentially what you want is you want this show to be an Italian with Italian, you know, actors. And that's if you want authenticity, that's what you go for. It means that if in the English-speaking world, if nobody wants subtitles, they can't understand what's going on, I suppose. But it's tough. It's like, what are you left with? So, you know, does, does the RP accent receive pronunciation? Like um, a lighter British accent I suppose and that was one of my questions to Dan when I met in Malta it was like well I mean I suppose this works in a world where we have British actors or certainly actors that are doing that receive British accent right I mean even an American accent suddenly I, I think would just pop and would sound weird you know an Irish guy using a British accent to play Leonardo da Vinci I said this is this could spiral quite quickly you know this might be one of the worst decisions I've ever made but then I kind of thought Dan didn't think it was a problem and Dan is super smart and I trust him and I started asking other people and nobody else seemed to think it was an issue so I knew it was something that I was I thought was a problem but nobody else seemed to so in those situations I tend to um, agree with other people and when we started I realized that oh it's 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 really not important. Like so quickly, even when you watch the show, so quickly you forget those things. They're in the world together. It's the eyes. It's the connection that matters. It's it's not the accent that comes out of the mouth. You know that we forget almost immediately. I suppose you know by default or whatever. I I chose that accent, <laughs> a British accent. British accent. <laughs> Anything else would have been distracting. Do you always sound so strange or is it something you need to work at? How much did you know about Leonardo da Vinci? How much did I know about him? Um, significantly less than you, I would imagine. Um, I, I don't know. I had a, I, it's, uh, 
a loose grasp, I suppose. Like, you know some of the more famous paintings and you know some of the inventions and I was familiar. You know, I'd flick through his notebooks that had been in my house for years, and, but I'd never read them. Uh, but you know what I mean? It's, it's just, he'd just always been there. <laughs> I'd seen the documentaries that come up on, on History Channel or, you know, it's, he's, he's a super famous polymath genius. You don't study Leonardo at school, right? Um, I would like to think I did, but I, I, I don't know what retained other than, you know, if, if I sort of delved through my mind as a younger person, I'm thinking helicopters, parachutes, I'm thinking, you know, Mona Lisa and the Louvre. And, I, you know, I'm not really piecing together too much or anything that's impressive. So I didn't know about, you know, how he was brought up or where exactly, you know, um, although it's in the name, isn't it? But then again, he wasn't born in Vinci, didn't he? Wasn't he born in the Tuscan Hills somewhere? And then he traveled to Vinci when he was five or something. So, um, But there was one book I did say to Dan. I said, look, I don't know how much time I... Like, how do I get into this really quickly? Like, what do I read? Because he's read the biographies. He's done a lot of the homework months and months and months previous. So he gave me Charles Nichols' Flights of the Mind. He said, that's one of the better biographies. Yeah. That was really helpful, especially about his early life, you know, the first few chapters of where he was brought up and how he was brought up and, mm-hmm. you know, working with Rocchio and, and those kind of things. So mm-hmm. I would like to say not a lot other than the snapshots of what we all, you know, know about Leonardo da Vinci. But yeah, a lot more once, once it got cast in the role. <laughs> what about you? Well, we studied Leonardo at school, you know, at art class. But for us as well, we don't know that much about his history his story, his real story, his sexuality. I didn't know about that. And I think that is really important to know because it adds like a layer of pain to his works and how his mind works. I mean, we know about his inventions, his uh, most famous works and, and stuff like that. But I would say I didn't know that much about him either. Certainly his sexuality is something that, that's... I, I don't think I was so sure about that either. I mean, I felt like in the last even five years, it's something I've learned. In the last few years, you know, I think I read a, an article in The Guardian or something that alluded to it. Yeah, they, because they don't, they don't tell you at school. No, I, I, there's very few places where I found that information. And then when you start, you know, delving more into it and you're reading more about it and citations from other people and quotes and different things, you kind of go, okay, it, it really, it, it was... It was a known thing, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's ever been discussed in a drama or, or anything, that not to the best of my knowledge. I think ours is one of the first maybe to really present that, which is kind of astounding. Yeah, It's such a huge part of who he was and his motivation for doing so much and for feeling. I mean, you're right, you look at his, his paintings slightly differently, you know, that there's, there's something almost tortured in some of it now. And you, you know, you can see something else and feel something else. There's something more visceral about it once you realize the sexuality is such a huge part of any person, you know, to, to even contemplate and not discussing the sexuality of a person is just, it's mind boggling. So I'm glad that's something that, you know, even from the early drafts of the scripts that that was present, you know, in, in our story. If you think about it, our relationship in the series makes sense if you tell Leonardo's sexuality. Otherwise, you don't get why he doesn't want to stay with a beautiful lady like me. I mean, it's impossible to understand. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Impossible. I mean, seriously. To understand their relationship, which is platonic and really, really private and really modern for the 16th century, 
because a man and a woman couldn't stay alone. They couldn't be friends, just friends. There was something wrong with it, right? So to really understand a relationship, you have to tell about his sexuality. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And when you tell Leonardo's sexuality, our relationship gets stronger and it's even more powerful and it's even more interesting and deeper, right? Absolutely. I completely agree. This is where you kiss me. I'm sorry, no. What? I don't want this. Homosexuality on the national television is really, really rare. It's told like, oh, I I got confused and I, I kissed a guy and I, I just got, I got confused, but um, I'm healing right now. Or I don't know, it's just something that happens. It's never, never, never really told specifically. And it's not the core of a story, almost never. But we have an amazing series called Scam, which is incredible. The first time someone has told like the relationship between two young teenagers, homosexual, and it's beautiful, it's heartbreaking, and people loved it. And this confirmed the theory that is not the audience that is not ready, but it's like politics is not ready. Uh, you know what I mean? But um, I don't want to get too specific because um, it's complicated, but yeah. I was stupid. I misinterpreted what was going on between us, so. <laughs> You're saying he rejected you? A beautiful woman like yourself. He's an idiot. I'm Angelica Bell, and you're listening to Leonardo, the official podcast. Now, there are very few people who can say they have held a da Vinci piece of art in their hands. Martin Clayton is one of those people. We had a brief introduction to him earlier on. His office is Windsor Castle, which means you could say that one of his work colleagues is the Queen. Now, Martin is responsible for more than 500 da Vinci drawings, making him the perfect expert if you're just beginning to get to know Leonardo and what he created. I really don't want to go against protocol here, but can you say anything about the Queen's involvement with the da Vinci collection? The Queen takes a very active interest in the whole of the Royal Collection. She takes her responsibilities as the custodian, if you like, of this fantastic historic collection very seriously. She follows the Royal Collection Trust, its activities very closely. Um, she is fully aware of every exhibition and every loan that goes out. And so, yeah, she is, um, she's very interested and fully aware of everything that the Royal Collection Trust does. Has there always been a fascination with Leonardo, the man, as opposed to just looking at his art outside of that? There's always been a fascination with Leonardo the man because until really the, even into the 20th century, his true nature as an artist was very difficult to determine. Very few of his paintings were available for general public consumption, if you like. The Last Supper was always the most famous painting. It was only in the 20th century that the Mona Lisa became the most famous painting. But apart from The Last Supper, very, very few of Leonardo's paintings were generally known. And it allowed biographers and historians to weave this sort of web of intrigue, of mystery around Leonardo. And it, it all goes back to the biographers of the 
of the 16th century, within a generation of Leonardo's death, Giorgio Vasari, who was the great biographer of, of artists writing in the mid-16th century, created this Leonardo who was a multifaceted but frustrating genius, somebody who was never able to finish anything, someone who was constantly being distracted by different areas of, of interest, who was uh, infuriating his patrons because he was never really able to concentrate on a single topic. And from Vasari onwards, other historians have created this Leonardo who was more of a myth than a reality. And it's only in the late 19th century when his notebooks were for the first time translated and organised and published that people really understood who Leonardo was. Left-handed strokes, if I'm not mistaken. I have an eye. You never get used to Leonardo. He's always surprising. There's always something else to see, something that you've never noticed before, because there are so many of the drawings at Windsor, and some of them are very famous and very frequently looked at, but others are much less well-known. And sometimes if I'm going through a box to get a particular drawing out, I'll take a moment to look at a drawing I'm less familiar with, and there's something there that, ah, oh, yeah, I'd never really noticed before. It takes me by surprise. It's, it's the fact that Leonardo was so fluid in the way in which he moves between different subjects that he's able to see connections between different subject matter that no one really has before or since with the same lucidity of imagination. Maybe that's what really captures it in Leonardo. That was Martin Clayton, head of prints and drawings at the Royal Collection. And he's right, we're just scratching the surface of what it was that Leonardo did that made him so fascinating. Next time then, as the drama discovers Ginevra de Benci, so do we, from the truth behind the painting of the real Ginevra to how her story holds many secrets. We'll also get into why the romantic image of the Renaissance woman really isn't all it's cracked up to be. Do you have anything to say for yourself? before I dismiss you. One last thing. Seeing as we've been discussing art reflecting life, it goes both ways. Writer Steve Thompson worked a moment from his own childhood into episode one of Leonardo. I was going to say my my physics teacher is in it. Not really, but um, there's a a scene at the beginning where you meet Verrocchio, uh, who's his tutor. He's so disgusted by the art this pupil has produced. He says, tell me, does your mother love you? And the pupil says, yes, I assume so. And and Verrocchio says, good, because I don't. Apes throwing shit have more talent. Get out of my studio. Go, go. And that's actually my physics teacher from school. Precisely what he used to say. If kids handed in bad homework. So there you go. It's not an Easter egg, but it's a little reference to my physics teacher. This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative in association with Lux Fide. Produced by Natalie Jameson and James Deacon. Edited by Chris Attaway. Sound mix by Mark Pittam. And production support from Barney Lee. Barney Lee.